0: Hey, everyone. Tommy here. We have launched our Weapon of Choice fundraiser, and listeners have begun to step up with their dollars by becoming sustaining members of the program. And we can't thank you enough. The money people have pledged will go into making this show that much stronger. I also encourage other people who have not yet signed up to become members of Weapon of Choice podcast. So log on right now at www.patreon.com forward slash Weapon of Choice podcast. We are so grateful to the people who have already pledged their support with their dollars. You have no idea how much this means to us. And our pledge to you is to stay true to our mission. We can't grow without your support. Our goal is to reach 1,000 Weapon of Choice community members, making this show nothing less than a people-powered podcast. This show will go on to exist because of listener support. If you can't donate today, please spread the word, post reviews on iTunes, and share the Facebook posts. I'll shut up now. Let's get on with the episode. Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. I'm Tommy Franklin.
1: And I'm Andrew Benda.
0: Welcome back to Weapon of Choice. We are thrilled to have you tuning in, as always. Thanks for listening. Thanks for engaging with us on social media. And you can always do that on Instagram, at Weapon of Choice Podcast also on facebook at weapon of choice podcast and on twitter that's at weapon choice pod and we're really excited about our guest today who is a master and expert in the world of theater so let's get into the show lou bellamy is the
1: founder and co-artistic director of the penumbra theater company in saint paul minnesota during his 39 year tenure Penumbra has evolved into one of America's premier theaters dedicated to dramatic exploration of the African-American experience. Under his leadership, Penumbra has grown to be the largest theater of its kind in America and has produced 39 world premieres, including August Wilson's first professional production. Penumbra is proud to have produced more of Mr. Wilson's plays than any other theater in the world. Mr. Bellamy is an Obie Award-winning director, an accomplished actor, and for 38 years was appointed as associate professor of the University of Minnesota in the Department of Theater, Arts, and Dance. This season, the Penumbra presents stories of people fighting to be seen, accepted, respected, and loved, not as the world dictates, but as they are.
2: Let's get into our guest. My name is Lou Bellamy. I'm founder of Penumbra Theater Company and am uh, artistic director emeritus. All right. Lou Bellamy, thank you for joining us
0: on Weapon of Choice. What is your weapon of choice
2: <laughs> and what battles are you fighting? Well, uh, I, I often say that um, theater is, is my citizenship. It's my way of, of making statements, speaking with an audience, talking to people, commenting on the world and and. I, I truly believe that. I, I was an artistic director for uh, 40 years. And the job of an artistic director is to live life. You know, you go out and you you get your hands messy. When I say live life, I mean not prophylactically. I mean life uh, as it touches you and so forth. So you go out, you do that, and somehow... And I the process of how that happens is unclear to me, but what an artist does is translate that experience into some sort of artistic reaction that you you, you experience something in the world and you gotta comment on it. And that's what we've always used theater for at Penumbra. The the play is viewed as sort of the opening gambit in a conversation with the community about issues that that we want to raise comment on uh, uh, laud them for their behavior get in there behind whatever it might be uh, we have a safe space here where complicated issues can be aired and uh, most of the time you find that people know what to do to solve their problems they may not have the resources it isn't that they don't know Mm. it's that they don't have the resources Mm.
0: so where did you grow up
2: i grew up uh right in this area where the theater is uh I've tipped over trash cans in all the alleys. I've taken jobs, shoveling snow on a corner that my daddy had to finish for me because I couldn't do it. But uh, yeah, I grew up in this area and somehow that informs my art as well. August Wilson and I used to argue about that. He said that that culture, something you put in your pocket and you take with you wherever you go, and I always argued that it's in the dirt, that it's there, and you, mm. you, you, you know, there are some sacred spaces that you can get into and feel something. I, I'll never forget. I was in. I, I travel so much now. Sometimes I get the states and cities confused, but it was one of the Carolinas, and we were doing a show. And we'd come in, and it was late at night, so, you know, it was dark on the street. And we had gone to a restaurant, and were on the way back to the hotel. Had a wonderful meal, all that sort of thing, and got deathly ill. Me and uh, a woman I was walking with, Lori Carlos, both of us were really sick. And so we got back to the hotel, and this subsided. We blamed it on food poisoning, which could have been going to rehearsal the next day we had to walk past that same block and there was a slave auction place exactly where we'd gotten sick and and i i always will believe to this day that there was something still in that dirt and the the pain and the you know all that horror made us sick that day uh so that's the argument i used to have about about culture and where it resides, I think that, that if you're centered and if you have an aesthetic that can keep you on the right road, if you will, uh, the right path, you can leave places and still hold that direction. But it's difficult because so many things tend to get you off task you may think you're on the path, and you're walking a completely different direction, you know. And so you've got to have markers, and that's what history does for you. That's what old people do for you. They they tell you, you know, boy, you got some meat on your head. Why don't you straighten up and, you know, those kinds of things. And, uh, yeah, well, I can talk forever about that. Yeah. Why is it important that um, art be infused
0: to all of these historical markers?
2: Well, art is another one of the tools that we use to express ourselves and understand ourselves. My daughter, who is running the theater right now, Sarah, uh, talks about heart first into a conversation, and art often allows you to go heart first. Mm. Your, your brain is processing other things, and that art will sneak in there and touch you, and it opens you up. So it, it's quite powerful. It's also, and theater particularly as art, is a way of organizing community that I've always believed in. And it, it, it's not anything that I thought of new. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. You learn that. But uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, for instance, conceived of a little theater movement. And the reason was it was a way to comment, it was a way to build community. To do theater, you got to have carpenters, you got to have accountants on a board, you got to have business people, you got to have artists, and all these people come together in a kind of community. So if you can focus that art, and bring that community to, together to those ends, then you're doing some really powerful community organizing.
0: yeah yeah, you know
2: <clears throat> in the forty years I a number of you' seen you know
0: to that essence, you've seen performers come through uh, staff crew and all of that come through here and be transformed by that familial and community aspect of this company so how did how did the bonds that created family ties within this space Give you pride and joy and even hope.
2: Well, something strange happens to an artist that comes into Penumbra to work. Um, they, if it, they're a black artist, they uh, and they've been a professional and out working in the world. They've got a a certain shtick that the larger community wants to see them do. Often that shtick includes suffering, oh, how bad it is, oh, my life, you know, all that kind of tough black life kind of thing. Now, I'm not negating that and saying that it doesn't exist, but black people have survived through that slavery, the North Passage, you know, all that sort of stuff. So there's more to this existence than that. So they come in here with that sort of attitude, and I'll start working with them. It's as though they're wearing tight shoes, mm-hmm. all right? And, and I, I take those shoes off, and I say, all right, now look, man, I know it's bad, and I know it's hard, and it's terrible, and you know how to suffer, and you know how to cry. But what you're going to do, let me see you think. Let me see you confront these things and, and actively involve yourself in solutions, you know, rather than languishing in the suffering. And it's the oddest thing. You watch that artist, that actor, and they when they find out, they said, now, you really want that? Because that, <laughs> they're, not, they're not used to getting asked for that. And then it's as though those toes start to spread out. And they, they open up and they, they find themselves in a kind of uh, a wholeness and beauty that they've been unable to express. Because one of the things about this black culture is because of the way it has matured and evolved in the United States, it's got a clandestine side to it. Um, you take Paul Lawrence Dunbar, we wear the mask that grins and lies, that shields our face and hides our eyes. Let them only see us while we wear the mask. So obfuscation and misdirection signifying all that stuff is part of being black. So you have to negotiate all of that, those barriers that are put up in order to get to the essence of who These people are because they needed to have those barriers to survive. Often, they're only asked to get past one or two. You see, am I making sense? Yeah. Oh, all right. Okay. How you feeling? Yeah. I'm cool. Take a little pause. Yeah. No, I'm cool. Let's go. (laughs) I'm wound up now, man. (laughs) Hell yeah. That's what I'm talking about.
0: Was there a switch for you at a specific age and realizing you wanted to be an artist?
2: Well, me becoming an artist, it was a long process because it's difficult to say you're an artist, you know. Uh, To decide? Yeah, to decide. And I sort of backed into it. I finally painted myself into a corner, and I had to say, okay, I give up. I'm an artist, you know. (laughs) Um, I, I don't think I've made a career choice in my life. I've, I've sort of always gone here and sort of moved there and moved along with the flow of things. And, and that's what I meant about sort of painting myself in a corner. But I've been fortunate that at critical points in my life, people have come forward and put me back on that path that I was talking about earlier. You know, they see something in you, as a young person, that you don't see, and they they let you know. They say, you know, you you got some good things going. Why don't you develop that? Why don't you work on that? Um, it, it's curious because black people understand immediately what they. They know what you've gone through, so they appreciate where you are. And they will come up to you and, uh, uh, and, and let you know. And I've been fortunate that at various points in my life, someone has always come up and moved me in the right direction. I'm an alcoholic. One of the company members here 30 years ago said to me, he quit drinking, and I said, you know what, hey, man, what, what are you doing? You, I drink more than you do. He said, well, some people can handle it, some people can't. That was enough to make me start to think that in a DWI. <laughs> but the point is, is that someone cared enough to say something, and in my life there's always been someone, somewhere I got into theater by accident. I went to an all white school, southern Minnesota, Mankato. When I was there, they had a law that black people couldn't own land inside the city limits. Hmm. That was 1962. There was a black vet there that that uh, owned land just outside the city limits so he could run a business. Um, But uh, I, I was there as a freshman. And uh, all of us were sort of, there were five black people in the town and they were all in school. So we all knew each other and everybody was, we'd give each other these horrible haircuts, you know, because you don't want nobody cutting your hair. So anyway, um, we're up in there and this guy is doing Finian's Rainbow. And that was a play that demanded uh, black participation in it. It was about a, an Irishman who fell in a well and turned black and therefore understood the plight of black people anyway. But it was it was transgressive for the time in that town. And the guy who was directing it uh, came up to the dorm and said, you're in a play, you're in a play, you're in a play. So we all went down there and got in a play. And uh, there were girls in the play there weren't girls in the track team so um uh and words already written to say to them so you know that's a bird nest on the ground so uh you know i started doing i i had this knack for theater i i had a good voice and uh you know i had a little bit of body and all that sort of stuff the stuff you needed the equipment mm-hmm. the uh to to do the work and uh I, again, began doing it. When I, after graduation, I uh, came back home to St. Paul and started working at the University of Minnesota, eventually as a, a counselor, went to graduate school in theater, and ended up teaching in the theater department at the university for, I don't know, 30, 35 years. Of those first couple performances... Is
1: there one that really stands out on that moment when you're on stage and you're looking out?
2: Well, you know, what I began to realize because of this professor was that, because I hadn't read history and and especially black history. I was a psych and soul's major, undergrad. And um, I began to, to understand that theater was a way to comment and to to change the world, to make people think. At that time, he was doing shows like In White America, uh, John Brown's Body, these plays that, that forced people to confront the civil rights movement, which was on everyone's mind in the 60s. So it was a way to, to, uh, to comment on that. And I remember that coming to me I was doing I think I was we were doing In White America and I was recanting some historical speech. And uh, it it hit me what I'm saying here. You know, theater is so sneaky and so powerful. For instance, we do a play yearly. We've been doing it for 20 some years. Black Nativity.
0: Yeah.
2: White people come in here and say Black Nativity. Now, come on, they ain't never said black nativity in their life. The concept of a black nativity is something that never probably occurred to them. But they come in and say that. I remember seeing a little boy running down the uh, hall here, and, a little black boy, and he ran into this white woman and she goes, is this a little black Jesus? I said, look at this stuff. You know, now this is Langston Hughes thought of this fifty, sixty years ago, but it is still changing people and and opening up possibility and so forth. It's it's really powerful. Yeah, a lot of a lot of
0: great art obviously
2: comes out
0: in uh, tumultuous times. So to speak to art being created in dangerous and uncertain times, can you compare a little, compare and contrast a little? the white supremacy Trump style era and art emerging from that as to the uh, Jim Crow and civil rights era where art emerged there as well?
2: This Trump era is, this is why you, you must be a student of history. If you see and recognize the, uh, the, the people around Trump and the, uh, the, the hatred that, that they espouse his uh, uh, single-minded attempts to wipe out Obama uh, uh, achievements and so Mm -hmm. forth. If you go back in American history, you'll find something very, very similar, and it's American Reconstruction. Right after the Civil War, we made all... In in most of the southern states, blacks uh, uh, outnumbered whites. So when they got the vote, they voted and they voted for black people. And we had black congressmen, a black senator in in Florida. You had, you know, lots of black people in government. That's why we have public schools right now because of those people. But what ended up happening, just as in that Obama sort of stride forward and achievements and so forth, those people were turned out of office, murdered, uh, bullied, uh, all that sort of thing. And all of those achievements were systematically dismantled. So what I see when I look at Trump is American reconstruction re- revisited. And it is, it, it, it's an ugly, ugly thing. Often the art that we do for instance we're sitting on a set right now of a play that's set in 1918 it's wedding band alice childers Um, she's talking about uh interracial marriage in the play miscegenation was not outlawed or laws against miscegenation were not outlawed in the united states until 1967 with a loving case in virginia Mm -hmm. so (laughs) <laughs> we, we act as though we've come so very far, and when you do these plays, they tend to let you, they, they, they act as a, a barometer to let you know how far you have or haven't come. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's intentional where I'm commenting on something, uh, like you do a zoo man in the sign about a little girl being shot by a stray bullet while playing on her stoop. You know, and that's that's uh, an intentional thing. Um, You may do something about police brutality that's intentional. But often when you do these plays, it's amazing. Someone will come up and say, how did you know? How did you how did you put this play up right now when we need to address these issues so badly? Well. Maybe I've got a sort of prescience that, that allows me to do that, but I don't think so. I think these are reoccurring themes that that affect these communities and the communities are plagued by them. You put up a show about a, a, a white cop killing a black man and it's going to be in, unfortunately, damn near any week you do it. Hmm. You know, so these are issues that move on. And we've been confronting and dealing with for quite some time. Mm.
1: You mentioned your your tenure at University of Minnesota. Can you tell us a little bit more about your time there?
2: Uh yeah, I taught at the University of Minnesota for I I, I don't know. I don't know how long I've been married. So, you know, I years I I just do them. But um I'd say thirty, thirty-five years maybe. I taught there. I started out teaching in the general college, which was the answer to the state mandate of a a state school that you have to provide entrance to the university for everyone in the state. So the general college offered a two-year degree, and it was a way in which people who might not pass entrance exams to get into the College of Liberal Arts, could get in, sometimes take remedial classes, and then transfer over with an AA degree and move toward their BA. Um, It was a particular kind of student that was in the general college. Um, They weren't uh, coming, many of them weren't coming right out of high school. Many of them were single mothers you know it was a, a different uh, population i learned so much from them because they wanted practical application of the theory that we were talking about in class you'd talk about stuff and they'd say all right cool cool how do i use that how does that get me from here to you know and it 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 changed the way i taught mm-hmm. after becoming a, a professional in theater The theater department offered me tenure, and I was hired with with tenure there. There, There's an interesting story there. When I was in graduate school, you used to have to take written examinations, um, and they would ask you these questions. Well, every question that they would ask, like talk about a, a riot in theater, well, what they're expecting me to talk about is the Astor Place riot where, you know, people got mad about the unities and burned the theater down anyway. um, But I would turn every question they asked me black. And I would talk about Brown's African Grove in 1821 where black folks were arrested held in jail for doing a Richard the third and were not let out of jail until they promised never to act Shakespeare again. This is 1821. So um, I continued to do that every question they'd ask because I'm now I'm not being taught this Mm -hmm. any of this material. This is my own research that I'm finding this stuff. But I would answer the questions that way. I was called in And a professor, the head of the department at the time, Uh, poor man's dead now, but at that time he told me, Mr. Bellamy, these these answers are fine, but you will be held responsible for this body of information. That was that Eurocentric theater history, Mm -hmm. okay? Now, you fast forward a few years, now that I'm a pro and I'm distinguishing myself in all these kinds of ways, they come in, hire me to teach the material that they would not sanction when I was in graduate school. It's bizarre. Uh,
0: <laughs> and, and so you're, you're also creating Penumbra at some point. Did, did the motivation to make the Penumbra and all of this great, did part of that motivation come from the constraints uh, in, in, the, in the university system, you know, what, what frustrations were there? It, it, was there a point where you hit a break point and said, I'm out?
2: Yeah, I, I, I got a degree eventually because, again, some one of those people stepped out and said, yeah. you got something. Here, let me help you get through this. But they wanted me to do a time. You had, I was a professional already while I was in graduate school. So I was making a living doing radio and television commercials and all that sort of stuff. Well, they had a rule that you had to be on stage, be in a production, at least one production, before you got a theater degree in mm-hmm. acting. Well, that makes sense. They offered me a role in Time of Your Life, and they wanted me to either tap dance or hambone. And I said, "No, I ain't gonna do it. Take your degree and well, what happened was a man who I studied acting with ended up doing Othello and cast me as Othello. so I got out of there and got my degree, mm-hmm. but I did not tap dance and I did not handle and I mean there were there were places where you had to You were the only black student often in these classes, so you had to sort of represent the race, and that's unfair to do, especially to a student. But, I mean, I remember being in a history class and a a theater history teacher said that uh, women in Elizabethan theater were a little bit like the nigger in American theater. And I hope. Raise my hand. What? Wait. Oh, no. <laughs> Hell no. No. We got to talk about this, you know. So you're always um, acting as though uh, reminding them uh, mm. uh, of something, you know. Uh, what about this? Mm-hmm. And that's what all of my research was about. I mean, uh, that that Brown's African Grove is a, a perfect example of the way these efforts are suppressed, and in that case, the law—I mean, the people were actually arrested and put in jail, and and, and in in costume, <laughs> they stopped the show and put them in jail. Yeah. Um, there are myriad examples of that, where um, uh, history is sort of uh, well, the people who write it get to tell the story. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm.
0: as an educator. In that tenure, I'm sure you appreciated all that that came with that opportunity, but you know, I'm sure you you had to balance cynicism and hope in 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 that system of higher ed. You know, was there was there a point where you burned out? I I'm a director
2: mm-hmm. now because acting's too hard, so I just don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a point at which um, I I when I taught, I've done a lot of research, but. I I tended to keep the material between the student and myself. I presented the material. They'd ask me, what do you think about it? And I'd say, well, Langston Hughes said um, so, you know, and I would quote things and and give them different perspectives on it so that they could make a a decision and sort of keep that material between me and the student. Mm. There was a time when I gave up on that and opened up my life to students. When that happened, I became a better teacher. Mm. I, I would say things, for instance, like uh, that I'm, I'm supposedly teaching direction. I don't know that you can teach directing, but I'd say, follow me around, come with me. And we'll see what you get out of it. You know, that's the way you learn this stuff. This is a craft. And you've got to to, uh, uh, be around, and I'm not claiming to be one of them, but the way you learn that is to be around a master and watch them work and watch them solve these dramatic problems. Mm -hmm. And then you begin to find out, find your own voice inside of that, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was a revelation for me when I opened up and allowed students into my life okay yeah uh
1: since we're talking about the university of minnesota and then also coinciding with the the creation of penumbra talk about the power of working with and not for other institutions
2: well uh when when penumbra and we do lots of collaborations uh we tend to this is a 250 seat house um When we do collaborations, though, we tend to do them with major, major theaters. It would be the Guthrie, the Children's Theater, Arizona Theater Company, Kansas City Rep, um, those kinds of places. So we tend to come in as the authentic voice, as the uh, uh, interpreter of this experience, and with that, I, I mean, on the one hand, I think that we've I I've done some some good work in opening up this this culturally based work that's responsive to African American culture and presented in all of its complexity, beauty and ugliness. I think that that's been worth it to take that to the big house and let them see it. The problem is that often they are not um, attempting to do the same sort of thing. So they don't learn a lesson from that. You, I walk in there, I bring in this, this culturally responsive piece, black folks go, You got to go see this. You know, it's the real deal. So they come in, they're made comfortable unless they're coming up some stairs like (laughs) what happened at a a major regional. And, you know, if you're black, you understand this white people perhaps don't where you walk into a store and people come running to you like, may I help you? You know, and and you get that sort of thing at some of these majors. But even worse, you tell the black community that it's okay to come there, that you're not going to be uh, humiliated, that you're going to see responsible depictions of yourself and your grandparents and your uncles and aunts, all that sort of stuff. and so then they come back for the next show i'm gone and some sort of uh, uh debilitating portrayal is 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 mm. it, it's like and i attribute this to tony morrison but i can't find the damn quote anymore but she talked about um uh the jack-in-the-box that black people deal with. You walk in there and they start to whine the dun do 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 they're whining and then all of a sudden out comes the jack in the box and you're a nigger, <laughs> you know, and so that happens too often. And and I I I don't know what to do about that. I I I feel responsible for inviting those people into that milieu but i don't have control of what happens to them in the next show or the show after that or the one yeah. after that would you consider that one of the great tragedies of theater well it it's it's the limit of my reach and my ability to affect their behavior you know i can only do what i do and and i That's what's kept me sane, to be frank. I mean, you sort of, you've got August and I used to talk about that, too. There's no map for this. You follow your heart. You know, that's what you do. That's what an artist does. You know, people ask you, how did you think of that? That was just wonderful. I mean, what, what? and I'm ashamed to tell them it's the only way I saw it. That's me. That's the, my heart. That's the way I interpret the world. That's the way I see this issue. And I, th- I think that's, as an artist, that's what I'm probably best doing. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point in my career, I'm enjoying getting out and sharing this work. Because you see, once you see it, it changes you when once you see these people in all their complexity and beauty and all these different colors of skin on stage and all these, the and and the 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 musicality and of the movement and the words and it just it it just uh, it's so warm and gorgeous and beautiful that that's what you want to see yeah and when you don't see it you go something's wrong here yeah you know and that's what I'm living for—is sharing that sure. right now. Yeah, it's, it's got to be hard to realizing
0: that some, you know, these some of these institutions aren't learning those lessons when they're no. being presented with this. I mean, Andrew and I were just at a, an artist talk where the the institution—I won't name it—hosting and and curating the event. Uh, one of the bigger parts of the conversation that night were like giving black. Uh, black queer women artists more opportunity and pain than what they what they're what they're worth so to speak and like the the institution that put this event on where these deep conversations are happening that very night in that room uh performers and photographers were not getting paid they were getting paid less than their rate <laughs> so that you know your example of like that that Uh, that misconnection of not having learned that lesson made me think of that moment. That was only a week ago, and it's 2017, right? Yeah. Were you, I mean, there's probably countless examples in your career, but um, what, what example maybe stands out most for you as a creator of
2: being misunderstood? Well, white people, in my experience, tend to take intelligence and directness as hostility (laughs) I, i remember being at a dinner and we were raising money august wilson used to come and you know he'd let me tax people to talk to him I'd stand there and they'd <laughs> want to get to August and I'd say, oh no no, no. you got to give up something you know <laughs> I mean, not, not that crude, but that's what that's what was going on. And he and I both knew it. But I remember uh, taking him around through this uh, uh, really high uh fundraising event. Mm. And me and August are walking through. and I hear this very wealthy, woman uh the name is on flower and so forth okay um this woman said as we went by such an angry man now she's talking about august so i heard her and i know her i said august come here i want you to meet somebody you know august is wearing a tie he's the most soft-spoken man you would ever meet he just almost you know it's until he got mad you know but you know i introduced her to him and they had this pleasant conversation and so forth but because he interpreted history that included a a perception of self and history and contributions of people to american history in a in a kind of a way that we know to be true as black people, she viewed that as anger, you know? Uh, And so that kind of misunderstanding happens all the time. That frank conversation, that knowledgeable response is viewed as anger and hostility rather than a different point of view or whatever you might want to call it.
0: What are we going to do about that?
2: Well, I, I've given up in many ways talking to them. I'm talking to black people now. Yeah. yeah. Every every piece of work that is directed or acted or performed on this stage is performed as though there are no one but black people in the house. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't have worth, to everybody else, you know, because certainly it does. Uh, they they find, in fact, perhaps that's the limit of your humanity, where you can see yourself in someone so very, very different than you, you know. So what ends up happening is uh, people come in here, and if they're not of the culture, and often our audiences are all white, 80%. <laughs> You know, all that kind of thing. They come in here and black people are falling out laughing, oh you know, and they're looking around going. And, and what it makes them do is it demands that they lean into that theater, that they lean into that experience the same way you do with Shakespeare or Chekhov. We don't talk like that. You got to concentrate to understand that stuff. And black people are that complicated they are tricky. I've been studying them my whole life and they still trick me, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so, um, that sort of authenticity teaches and allows them to find themselves in, you know, someone very, very different. I'll tell you a great story. We, we used to be funded by Lutheran Brotherhood and they funded our black nativity. Now this is all this gospel music, you know, and this rousing stuff. Well, Lutheran Brotherhood has, or at that time, I don't know if they still have it, they had a very, very good communication network that reached out into rural Minnesota all over because there's Lutherans, you know, in all them little towns and stuff. And they, so when they sponsored Black Nativity, it hit their newspaper or their their communication system and went out to all those places. Well, here come all these people from Glencoe and, you know, Mankato and all these places. They coming in, clapping on the one, three and everything. (laughs) (laughs) But but you'd see them you'd see them get into it they'd they'd be trying so hard and then all, all of a sudden that music would grab them and they'd emulate a black person sitting next mm. to them and before you knew it they were up and dealing you know mm. so uh, uh, I don't know I lost it now but it, it it was a wonderful experience to see but you only get that if. You're being true to the culture and, and the truth. You don't get it. You don't reach a universal by watering it down. You reach a universal by being very specific. Mm. That's the way you reach a universal. One of the things that, that is interesting to me is that when, when we began in 1976, a lot of people were angry. And so that showed on the stage. and I remember some older black people saying, in fact, you'd say nigger in here, and you'd see the old people getting up getting out the way. I'm not I don't pay know at that time a dollar and a half to come in here and hear nobody talk like that or a curse word or something. So there there was that anger that was part of the art. Um, Uh, we were sort of, there was literature out there for us to perform, but it was couched or informed by that uh, uh, black aesthetic, the black arts, uh, so forth, that, that had precepts that guided you in the presentation and the creation of art, what it was supposed to be. For instance, and I still follow most of them, that um, the black artist eschews any a- attempt to separate him or her from their community. And that happens all the time. People see me now as an exception somehow. So why don't you come and work over here? You know, And that has seeped into the black community so much that I remember coming out of here one night And it was when we were doing Fences. I was playing Troy Maxson. And this older black woman was out there. And uh, I came out, and she said to me, you know, uh, you're good. Well, I went to kicking, you know, and towing my toes, and, oh, you know, thank you, all that old kind of stuff, you know, that humble thing. And she said, No. Mm. And I heard her voice change. And that meant for me to look at her, you know? (laughs) So I looked at her and she said, no, you're good. And I said, well, thank you. And she said, why are you still here? Blew me away. Why? Because this lady is used to seeing anything good coming out of this community being siphoned off. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, a creative, vibrant community that that comes out with styles. You know, you go to, I don't know, Sweden, and Swedes are hanging and bagging and sagging, and hats turned around, all this little kind of stuff. You know, this yeah. is this is a, a potent culture that comes up with all these things, and the larger society sort of gleans them and clears them off and that's what that woman was asking me you are so good why are you still around black people why are you still in the community Mm. you know and I said you know this is where I'm gonna be and I'll be here you know I didn't know that at the time but I'll be here next time you come back you know I'm not going nowhere and uh, when we were For instance, trying to to get money, we wanted to build a new building. Went to the state legislature. Ended up getting $3 million that uh, we had to match. We didn't make the match, and Jesse Ventura took the money away. Uh, I don't know, did something, bought motorcycles. I don't know what he did with the money. But it became obvious. There was a senator, I think, he might have been a representative, representative. Ostov was his name, I'll never forget it. And he asked me in a hearing, because we had just come from doing a show at the Guthrie. And it was, I think it was Fences, I don't know. I, I, was, I think I was acting in it. But anyway, it was just a hit. Everybody in the world came to see that play, all right. So he said to me in this hearing, I understand why someone would come to see you at the Guthrie but what makes you think they're going to come to see you in a so and so building in that neighborhood mm. well they had to hold me down man mm. <laughs> you know but you you see again that this this culture this art the only has worth as it approaches the margins And it's Marx wrote about it, that these things start inside of the people. And inside there, they often are utilitarian. They don't have monetary value. They're culture reinforcers, stabilizers, all that kind of thing. But as that moves toward the edges, as that begins to move toward the margins, it becomes monetized and becomes worth something picks up a worth that it doesn't have as long as black people doing it. When black people had their hat turned around, then that was them niggas acting crazy. But all of a sudden, look at look at Trump has the gall to come talking about an opioid crisis. Mm. Will you <laughs> that is astounding when crack decimated the black community. And no one gave a shit. I mean, come on, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't. I, I can't go any further. Mm, so, yeah. st-
0: you know, sticking to your guns and remaining remaining <laughs> remaining uh tried and true to producing black theater. You know, yeah. staying here. Um, how does it feel to have gone down the path you've chosen for yourself, and yet seen countless talented creatives succumb to those same pressures to quote unquote expand or widen their work? that you kept at bay for decades.
2: You mean those larger institutions doing that work? Yeah, I or, mean, you, you or s- the-
0: but you've seen you've seen the people who have left, right? Oh I'm yeah. Sure, you've seen yeah. all over the country there's been hundreds of theaters that have shut down or not sustained themselves or people who just left. And yeah. some of those theaters would have sustained themselves had those masters stuck around. So um yeah, like how does it feel to have you know, stuck to your guns and seeing the opposite of that amongst your, your well, contemporaries.
2: I think, again, you have to follow your heart. you got to do what's true to you. I can't tell anyone else what to do. Um, I I wrote a, an op-ed that I understand is in a book uh, on Garland Wright right now when they did Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. And there was a, uh, it was a black Death of a Salesman. At least all the dysfunctional people were black. Um, Willie Loman and all that stuff. But anytime he had to go outside, he'd have to go to a white person to get some help. But anyway, they had a black man playing in that... I don't know if you know the play, but in Death of a Salesman, there's this surreal sort of sequence where he imagines his brother, who was very successful. And he was successful by bring he went into africa with nothing and came out rich with diamonds okay now how's this brother going to get these diamonds out of africa it ain't happening so you see you can't you you can't even do that they had willie loman uh, a black willie loman staying with a white prostitute in washington dc and when arthur miller wrote the the play those hotels weren't integrated, mm-hmm. so he couldn't be there. So, you, you know, you, they sort of negate the racism but by, by doing it. Um, I took issue with that, and I remember talking to the man who was playing that role of walking around saying he came out with Diamonds in Africa. And after arguing for some length of time, I realized it wasn't really fair to ask him because an actor has gone through all the process of justifying these choices. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't change him, Mm -hmm. but I can stand on the outside because he said, well, black people made some money on diamonds. Yeah, but that isn't the trope that you're presenting here. The one brother who got out with a diamond in an orifice somewhere in his body. That ain't what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but one has to, to speak out. One can't deny another individual from making choice. When I begin to worry is when they somehow place a, uh, an elevated degree of, of achievement on doing that kind of work. I'm doing Chekhov. Mm. Well, I'm doing August Wilson. You know, I'm doing Shakespeare. I'm doing Alice Childress. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, uh, there, there's this false equivalency that somehow I've been chosen. I'm that exception that has been pulled away from the people. They're not found the black arts movement because they wouldn't let them separate them from the community. You know, yeah. now I'm not downing anybody. I know you got to work and you look here you see 250 seats right across the river the guthrie has a theater with 1200 okay so that's a lot more money that a playwright's going to make that an actor's going to make and no one can fault them for wanting to do that Um, it doesn't mean that i'm going to ever do less but you know, that that happens. We are, th- there, there are artistic directors that used to come here. I haven't seen it lately because I'm not at all the shows like I used to be. But they'd come in here with their secretary and look at a production and say, that one. And, and she'd write down the name, look in the program, that one. So they're coming in here shopping. We're their farm team, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but that that's not gonna stop anything, you know. People been talking about the eternal nigger since slavery. <laughs> you know, they would just won't go away. August said they uh, um, the white man has had his stew. He took his okra and his all this stuff and made up this stew, and you part of the stew. Now he done ate and all the telephone poles in the ground, the railroads is built, he's through with you now. Now you get on and go on and get off his plate. <laughs> well, you know, it's very profound. Wow, thank you.
0: Thank you, it's well, an, an honor. Thank you. We'll be back. Thank you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Once again, thanks
0: for listening. We hope you loved this episode with Lou Bellamy. And for any artists out there, we would love to know what is your weapon of choice? And for all the people listening, what art are you currently taking in, or have you been taking in that is giving you energy and hope, and uh, really energizing you to go out there and stay active and fighting for the change we want to see in the world? And uh, I was wondering, Andrew, have you? Do you have much experience going to theater? Did you ever do anything with theater growing up or in school?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I don't go to as much theater as I as I should. Um, Because I really enjoy the experience. I need to, like, get out more and do that. But I I did grow up when I was, you know, like, in high school. I was in high school plays. And um, I always actually really enjoyed acting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was something that not many people... I had this, like, really tiny, tiny school that I went to. In high school and it just seemed like a different thing that nobody else was doing and I just got a kick out of it um, and I, there's like this theater bug this acting bug that I still like to floss every once in a while so that's a great question I don't think I go enough to say that I, I've always I've never not enjoyed going to like making a night of going out and going to a performance um, recently I've, I've been I've been Seeing more of the value of musicals, so uh, so I <laughs> nah, so I, I was really, I was where you yeah I <laughs> didn't really do
0: it for me man musical I'm never gonna see La La Land let's just get that straight. I had a friend so just a couple of days ago
1: I had uh, my friend Shin mm. wanted to watch La La Land and I was like I had what? no desire and he just started talking to me about his love for musicals and the craft and all the reoccurring elements of the songs. Um, I can't remember the exact. Like he he's he's all in on musicals, so uh, he was really sharing with me all these ways that he loved it, and I I was like, well, damn, I need to give this a I need to give this more of a shot. So I think musicals are something that I want to give. I mean, especially because I have such a broad range of appreciation for music in general. Like you'd think on paper, I'm a huge film nerd. I love all music. This should be a great marriage, right? So mm. I think I think maybe yeah dive, taking a deep dive so if anybody's listening and has recommendations for their favorite musicals I would love to hear
0: yeah I, I should probably uh, musicals can get expensive man I went to Hedwig and the Angry Inch uh, with a group of friends some odd months ago and it was pricey but you know but once you're there and you're sitting down and you experience mm-hmm. it all yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely worth it so you definitely got a, uh, an argument there you know and especially when it comes to music for you listeners out there I, we'd love to hear your suggestions of artists you'd love to hear songs of on the show, because we always like to feature music at the end of every episode. This week's episode, we have some awesome music from the ridiculously talented Sarah White out of Minneapolis, right here in our backyard. And this song is off of her most recent EP. It is called August, and you're gonna love it. And on that, we'll get out of here. We will say, We love you. Thanks for listening, always. And we will see you next time.
1: And stay strong during this shitty holiday season, everybody.
0: I agree with that. (laughs) Peace.
3: in your words and in your hearts. Let black be sacred in your actions, in the way you breathe and love. Let black be sacred in the streets, and in the movement, and in the prisons, and in the playgrounds, and in your spirit. Let black be sacred with your mouth. Let black be so sacred that it lives in the bellies of your children, healing pain from generations of generations of buried grief. Let black be sweet, sacred, buried love songs. Let black be sacred. Let black be sacred, street warriors and queens uniting and loving within. Let black be sacred in your hearts. Black be black be black.
1: Hey there, everybody. It's Andrew. And I just wanted to remind you that we need a thousand of you to show us love and support the show. You can make a monthly contribution starting at $1 to help us continue making this show. You can support us now by going to www.patreon.com forward weapon of choice podcast. That link to give is also in the show notes. There are some cool perks to becoming a contributing member at any level. And as we grow, we plan to make available more weapon of choice items for folks to represent with. Thank you so much.